Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is evening here on January the 4th, getting you two times in two days. Uh, what's new? Yeah, well, we're trying to fit a couple of these episodes in before you get back on your on your jet and head, heading off to the homeland of India for a couple of weeks. But today, we're also really thrilled to be recording today on the 4th because today's a significant day in Massachusetts. It is Governor Baker's final day in office and tomorrow incoming Governor Healy, Governor-elect Healy, will be inaugurated uh, tomorrow at, at noon. And Ricky, so I was over, I think most people that have listened before at least know that I go to Suffolk Law School. If people know where Suffolk Law School is, it's at the bottom, it's on Tremont and Park Street, it's right by like Park Street Station. So I was leaving school, it was like a little after 4.30 a day, and I'm, I'm parked uh, right on like the street up there. And there's like, I look up and there's police, like, there's all these like lights everywhere and there's this big crowd. And I'm like, darn it. Like I'm never going to be able to get out here. I was like, what's going on? Cause like, there's like, uh, there's oftentimes like demonstrations that they block off the street for. But then as I'm like, walking up the hill, it, it hits me that this is governor Baker's last day. And like, this is the famed lone walk where they open up the state house doors, which I just learned the other day. They only do on like three occasions, like the last day of the, governor's term and when if uh, like the president comes and visits or if the if Mass- Massachusetts troops are being deployed and so then I'm walking up the hill and I'm like all right well I gotta stay here and watch this it's like a little after 4 30 I assume it's gonna be at five and I was kind of like laughing to myself like what if he came out 4 55 you know people would be like oh he's cutting out early on his last day but no it went until it went until like he didn't come out until like 5 45 and then it was uh it was like a, a uh, whole thing, but very cool. If I had known that I was going to be waiting for over an hour, I don't know that I would have waited, but I'm glad that I did because it was a very cool thing to witness. I think, I think that that is the emblematic or like quintessential Bostonian experience. It's like, I want to see cool things, but I don't like traffic. <laughs> well, yeah. And then I, I barely made it home in time for the interview that we're about to have because I was stuck uh, trying to on Marcy Boulevard trying to get home for like an hour after that. But uh, speaking of, we are thrilled this week to be welcoming Andrea Van Zant. We'll get more into her bio, but she has a ton of experience on political campaign. She is now a political commentator and a podcast host in addition to her day job. And we're just this is just a perfect week to have her on. We'll look back at the outgoing Baker administration, look ahead to the incoming Healy administration, reflect on Mayor Wu here in Boston, her first year, and get to pick Jaquetta's brain and like truly uh, an expert in a lot of like these political areas and someone that's run a lot of campaigns and worked in like in political offices before. So super excited to have her on to get her insights into all these things. Yeah, definitely. Um, And we continue to be very fortunate that, uh, these fine people lend lend us their expertise. No, I know. And it's not just that like people will come on and give us time, but this, she's like 
I think like the perfect person for this like specific time. And so I feel like sometimes like I feel like there's no better place to go. So hopefully um, people that are listening will enjoy this conversation um, as much as, as we hope that they will. Indeed. But there's always a but. <laughs> but before we get into all that, Ricky, we do want to remind everyone that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking in an episode that is all about Massachusetts, the state, and Boston, the city. You know that they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks here in Boston since 2018. They just celebrated their fourth year anniversary of, of being in business and have had tremendous success. Ricky, I have like a true trivia question for you. This isn't even like a pun. This is like a legit trivia question for you. Well, okay. I'm ready. What is the Massachusetts state tree? I don't know. A spruce? That's not a bad guess. Uh, an American elm. Ah. Should have known. And the reason that it was an American elm is because it is used to commemorate the fact that George Washington took command of the Continental Army beneath an American elm on Cambridge Common back in 1775. Kind of a cool story. That is a cool story. And actually something I don't think I did ever know, although I'm pretty sure it is in our uh, in our school seal. Yeah, well, now you do. And hopefully and then now everyone else that there does too. All right, we're all armed with that new fact. Uh, hopefully this conversation with Jaquetta will, will give people even more. All right, we are now thrilled to welcome Jaquetta Van Zandt onto the program. Jaquetta was born and raised here in Boston. She graduated from Mount Ida College, which is now part of the UMass system, with a Bachelor of Science in Criminal Justice. She also honed a political skill set on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., as well as working various state and federal campaigns, which we're excited to hear more about. Um, she was a huge force uh, for the successful campaign of Framingham's first ever mayor and the only person who was popularly elected uh, a woman of color to that post. And then after the election of Dr. Yvonne Spicer, she went on to be a senior advisor to the mayor. She currently works at The Partnership, which is a business that makes corporations and institutions more competitive in a global economy by helping them attract, develop, maintain talented multicultural professionals, and also by creating a corporate climate that encourages diversity and helping multicultural professionals thrive. In addition to all of that, she also hosts a popular podcast, Zoom podcast, uh, called Politics of Prosecco, which is an awesome name, credit to you, uh, with <laughs> Lori and, and this is how I became aware of Jaquetta, was she's also a, a commentator on NECN. And so as I was tuning in to all of the Massachusetts elections over the past year, Jaquetta, her, her voice, her perspective caught my eye. And um, we reached out and we're, we're so thrilled that, that she's giving us some of her time today. So Jaquetta, thanks so much for joining us. No, I'm thrilled to be here. You guys are amazing. And I love that more of us are coming into the space to, you know, talk about politics, right? People oftentimes think that you need to have you know, either tons of political experience from the Hill or you need to be a law professor or a um, a constitutional uh, kind of professor or instructor. And really, you don't. Um, 
everyday people have a perspective and it's oftentimes a more truthful perspective. It's, it's not sort of um, guarded at, at, in, at any time. And so I think I love that the most. Well, we, we certainly give credence to the fact that you don't have to be an expert to have opinions. So, uh, but we, we do love having these conversations. So, like I said, I gave a very brief overview of your bio, but Ricky and I were talking before you came on of, we're just super curious of how, can you tell us more about like how you got involved in politics? What were maybe some particular moments, mentors, campaigns that sure. have been influential in your life? So I'll give you sort of a brief background on how I got involved. My mouth actually got me involved in politics. Um, in high school, I went to the John D. O'Brien School of Math and Science. Shout out, Tigers. Um, and I was running my mouth in history class. And my history professor happened to be um, doing call time for the Clinton campaign, second term. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a lot older than I look. Um, so, if, you, if you're not watching on Zoom, she does look super young. So that was surprising <laughs> to me. Yeah. Um, and so I had detention and he said, um, your detention will be, you're coming to this call center with me and you're going to make these phone calls. And I did. And I, I loved it. I actually figured out that I was good at being able to tell people to vote and like persuade them to get involved. Um, and that campaign, I really wasn't paying much attention to it. You know, I was, I was only 17. So I, you know, I wasn't really paying much attention to politics at the time. I knew about Bill Clinton, but, you know, in my house, it was, uh, politics were a thing, but you just weren't zoning in. Um, you know, at 17 in the nineties, you were kind of living your best life through gangster rap and clothes and, you know, really weird fashion and, and trying to just kind of come into the new millennium. Um, and so I went back every day until election day. I made calls every day until election day and I just loved it. So when I got to college, um, I was trying to figure out how I can stay involved, even though I was in Newton, how I can stay involved in Boston. And, and my, my history teacher from high school actually got me an internship, um, at Barney Frank's office in Newton. Wow. So first um, of all, sounds like a great teacher. Credit to that. It was awesome. Um, and so sounds like and also, that's how people pour into you. I'm sorry, say that again, Ricky. I was going to say, sounds like a not entirely legal form of detention. I don't know. Can they do that? I, yeah, I'm sure that probably wouldn't fly with the helicopter parents of today's generation. Um, but, you know, at, at O'Brien, they, they were, their intention was to not only just teach you, but to pour into you and to make you a well-rounded citizen of the world. Um, and so I worked at this internship. Um, and in the summer, I would go down to D.C. and work internships on the Hill that way. I met a ton of people. And... You know, in, in Barney Frank's office, the whole point was to build your network. Um, and so from there, I met a kid named Joel Bridgman, who at the time I didn't know was working for David Axelrod. Um, and so after I had graduated from college, uh, I was like stuck in a cubicle. I was like an administrative assistant. Uh, I had three different bosses. It was a miserable experience. And so he called me up one day and he said, um, you know, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, God, I'm dying in this cubicle. I'm dying on the vine. Um, and he's like, oh, well, you know, we need people to come out to Iowa. Would you come out? This this guy, Barack Obama's running. And I was like, oh, I don't think he's going to win. But like, dude, let's, I was like, well, how much does it pay? And he's like, nothing. And I was like, yeah. God, this guy's going to lose and I'm not getting paid for it. But I, was, I had nothing else going on. So I was like, I literally just took a leap of faith. I went out to Iowa. We won Iowa, as you know that. And from there, I got a job. Um, that was... 
Yep, that was yesterday, right? Wasn't like uh, I, it was like I the, really hope so. I think I, it was the fifteenth anniversary. Was like yesterday. I was saw. it yesterday? Yeah. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Yeah, I can't believe it. Yeah. So from there, you know, I got a job in Ohio because I wanted to be in a battleground state. I knew that that was the way you could learn. You, you know, I didn't want to be in sort of like a Massachusetts or a New Hampshire where you knew it was going to be an easy vote. I wanted to go where it was going to be a fight. Um, so I was in Ohio. From there to the White House, from the White House to Terry McAuliffe, from Terry McAuliffe to back home. Um, so that's sort of like my history. Uh, I, I I ran into a lot of really cool people who weren't looking to make history, but were instrumental, like Robbie Mook, um, you know, on the Terry McAuliffe campaign, I, you know, again, um, Joel Bridgman from Axel Rod's office. There's so many people that I just luckily ran into when we were all just trying to be better citizens. We didn't know we were making history. We weren't looking to do that. So that's sort of how I kind of got into politics. Well, that's a pretty impressive story. For people who don't know, <laughs> Terry McAuliffe uh, was a former governor of Virginia and now is actually like a political commentator, just like- right. Right. So it's kind of funny. It's all but before out. that, you know, he was a really good fundraiser for the DNC. So, mm -hmm. so Terry had had some some years in the game. Yeah. I, well, I mean that that's like an incredible like run through sort of, especially like the DNC, the Democratic machine. I'm curious what you think about sort of the recent changes to the 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 nominating sort of the primary schedule um and like how you you know you had to go there to Iowa with a candidate like Barack Obama pre-Barack Obama, right? Right. So that that must be, I mean, that must have been an incredible experience, obviously, to to win and and, uh, and obviously what happened after that. But then now what's going on? I'm cu yeah, curious what you what's think. What's interesting is the Iowa caucus, then and now, right? Like what I had, what I had known about caucus time, caucus, you know, space was what we do here in Massachusetts, which is very archaic. And it wasn't this, you know, big persuasive machine. Here in Massachusetts, people have slates. You're calling your friends ahead of time to put the slate together. You know the slate's going to win. In Iowa, you actually have to go out and persuade these people to not only just caucus and caucus for your candidate, but they want to know why. They want to know why you're backing this guy. So I had to relearn what it was like to actually build out a caucus and and to be able to persuade people and and you know unfortunately massachusetts still doesn't do that they still have a very archaic way of doing things um and it's it's a detriment to bringing on new people into the democratic process it's a detriment to retaining young voters um and to get them involved in in the process that being said i think across the board we we need change right i don't know if caucuses will be a thing of the future progressive young voters now are more interested in, in interest-based campaigning, right? They want to know what special interests you are backing and that aligns with their values. And I, I think that that's the smart way to go. Um, whether it's energy, whether it's reproductive rights, whether it is veterans, I, I think that special interests will be the way that you will see how people start to vote for candidates. You saw, You sort of see it now with a lot of progressive candidates, they start picking in and zoning in on one in particular like issue um, and they make an issue-based campaign into their big campaign. So, you know, I, I I think caucuses will become a thing of the past. So I don't know if the changes are going to do anything. I think they're going to become sort of dormant. <laughs> All right. 
And so I want to now transition back to your time here in Massachusetts and talk a little bit more deeply about you getting involved with Dr. Ron Spicer and the Framingham campaign. Because as I briefly mentioned, this was, Framingham was transitioning into a, in, from, from what a town was to a previously city. like a town manager system yeah. with like a, like a yeah, right. And so what was that experience like, that transition of bringing almost all of the city services under like a, a mayor, a mayor's office? So they had been, you know, sort of doing this process for a while um, and sort of going from a town to a city. They already had, I mean, Framingham was the biggest town that wasn't a city in Massachusetts. And they had already had sort of a a very good machine that was working for them. They just were in a town format. They weren't getting what you would get as a city. They weren't getting the same kind of resources and benefits. And so, you know, they voted to make this happen. I was not very involved um, during that process. I met Dr. Spicer when I worked for Treasurer Goldberg as her director of community engagement. Um, Dr. Spicer was on one of our like sort of advisory boards. And when I heard she was running, I was like, well, not where is Framingham, but what is Framingham doing? (laughs) And I was like, okay, this lady (laughs) has a scientific background. Nobody knows her this could be like my opportunity to like, just rock it. So I literally cold called her and I said, I know that you've only seen me three times in your life, but I will come work for you for free if you let me work your strategy, if you let me build it out. And she did. It was actually, what many people don't know, is a a mayoral strategy I had written for Ayanna Presley to run for mayor, if she ever ran. I had already did it. Like I, I didn't ask Ayana's permission. I didn't say, Hey, you want to run? I just literally sat down. I had never written a campaign strategy before. I knew all the parts, but I just, I didn't know what I needed to do. Um, and so I was like, okay, if I could do that in Framingham and see if it works, I'm a badass. <laughs> like that's what I was thinking. So um, she said, work for free? Sure, come come on. Um, she had a whole team of people. Um, she, and you know, I, I didn't know at the time like what you're supposed to charge consultants or anything like that. Like I was, I was literally doing this to see if it could be done. I wasn't out to make history or anything. You know, I, that's not how I go into campaigns. And so, you know, we were out fundraised by this, a candidate who was already a state rep. He was born and raised in Framingham. Everyone, the odds were against us, which are the kinds of campaigns I love because it makes me work harder. It makes me want to prove to people. It's it's also because I'm I'm the youngest. I have uh, four sisters above me. And so like, there's always a competitive spirit to be like, well, you said I can't do it. So now I got to do it. And not only do I have to do it, I have to destroy you in the process of making this happen because you said I couldn't do it. Right. And so um, we were out fundraised. We knew that we had to get to a win number, but Dr. Spicer had to be introduced as a campaigner and a new candidate. No one knew who she was. She had been on town council, but so were 400 other people. So, you know, there was really no way. And, and the strategy that, that we put in place, I say we, because it was a team of us, um, was really to introduce her to voters who don't likely come out. 
right? Like that was our, that was going to be our base. We knew that he solidly had, you know, the hard line voters that were going to, the super voters that were going to come out, the people who were very involved, the little committees and the cliques. And so those weren't our people. Our people were like not likely voters who were going to be inspired by this woman who was running. It helped also that she was a person of color because people want to feel inspired, like they're giving someone else a leg up. Um, And so we rocked it. And, you know, it was a tough, it was a tough transition because many of the old guard in Framingham just were going to be against her from day one. And that includes, you know, one of the bloggers of that area who just was, you know, hardlining us all the time. She wrote one time that I was walking around City Hall with Calvin Klein dresses and Ralph Lauren shoes. And I was like, yeah, from the clearance rack. But like, Mm -hmm. but like, why is that important? Right. Like we're, we're here to do real things. Like we wanted to bring about awareness around education. We wanted to talk about like how we can sort of unify the community and really make framing him a, a, a voice at the table up at the state house. Cause that really wasn't, you know, what was happening. And, you know, we, she did her very best and I think she was a great mayor. Unfortunately, you know, she didn't win reelection. And I think a lot of that is because some of the, the forces in framing him just were going to be against her no matter what. It didn't matter that she was spectacular and she was well-educated and she had lived in Framingham for 21 years and she was a homeowner and a business owner in Framingham. Everything on paper of what they said they wanted in a mayor, she was. There were some other things working against her, like her color, like her gender, and and people didn't want to have that conversation. So I think two things you said I want to touch on first super inspiring for anybody that like wants to get into politics and just like cold calling someone and not in being in being like willing to work for free and like the same thing when you went to Iowa like just being willing to go like it's there's something like you and I were talking of like anybody can do that like if, yeah. if you're passionate about something go go do it and I think that's really cool and I don't have Second, a trust fund by the way I was just happy to be broke <laughs> apparently yeah. yeah but yeah so far so good you're doing okay for yourself I'm doing fine <laughs> yeah uh, but then the second thing you said is one of your goals was to unify Framingham. And I actually outsourced this question. A mutual friend of Ricky and I's, um, Brendan Ward, grew up in Framingham. He now he now moves back there. He and his wife bought a home and he served on the school committee there. And so I was like, we're bringing on Jaquetta Van Zandt, like used to be a senior advisor, Dr. Spicer, like any questions for, for her? And he was like, I'd be super interested to hear Framingham's a large and diverse city. And he was like, not just diverse, like racially and ethnically, but also in like, there are some really kind of more urban areas, but there's also like farmlands out there. And I was, it kind of made me think it's like Massachusetts as a whole, almost like a small version of Massachusetts as a whole, where you have like Boston, Worcester, Springfield, Lowell, but you also have like a lot of space in other parts of the state. So he was like, I would just be curious to hear, especially now that you said that one of your goals was to unify such a diverse city. Like what were some of the things that you went about doing to try to accomplish that goal? So Framingham actually has a lot of open spaces that the residents weren't using. Um, and so part of that, and this was pre-pandemic, right? So so we didn't have the challenge of having a pandemic at this time. Yeah. Um, part of that was making sure that the south side of Framingham felt like they could come into those spaces and be comfortable. Um, and so the mayor would propose like these sort of small coffee gatherings or unity days um, in Framingham that would encourage the south side to come into the north side of Framingham and vice versa. They, you know, we had we had thought about doing a, a music festival 
um, that because music is so universal and it brings people together. Um, and, you know, we would have, you know, like they had like a, um, I don't want to say it was like a Christmas bazaar, but they had like, you know, a holiday gathering. Um, but when you walked into the room, you know, it wasn't many people of color and there weren't a lot of young people. And those were, those were two demographics that really needed to feel like they were a part of, of the city. Um, and so we would encourage people, we would make calls into what we knew were these homes that either had single women or had younger uh, voters um, and, and encourage them to come out. So we really did try to blend. Um, we also wanted to make sure that people felt safe in, in the city. You know, Framingham downtown is very, very small. It's not very big at all. Um, and it's it's almost like a circle. So we encouraged more business owners of color to come into the city, to own in the city, um, do vendors. We did a flag day parade where we were asking vendors outside of Framingham to come in with their different ethnic foods. Um, so we really did make an effort to unify the city, not just by gender, but by, uh, not just by race, but by gender and by class. Mm -hmm. um, because that's something cities don't talk about. We do that here in Boston, right? Boston is very se segregated by class. Um, and as much as every mayor has tried, they have failed at that. Um, so that was one of the things that my biggest passion in working with her and my job was really to build out those relationships and, and we did, but the sustainability of them, you needed to be there for two terms in order to make it happen. I'm, I'm kind of curious because I, I think you're talking a lot about what, once she was mayor and how you were implementing a lot of her vision it's sort of the like the campaign crafting process. How much of it is like, you know, we're going to sell the dream and figure out how to deliver on it later? Or how much of it is really like, you know, these are the specific things that we want to do. I always think that that's an interest. I mean, when sort of everyday conversations about candidates happen, oftentimes it's like it is like the issues that they stand for, not necessarily the problems or how they're going to solve kind of yeah, the yeah. problems that they identify. Well, here's what's interesting. When we were running, we had to run two separate kinds of campaigns. One, we had to sell to people that having a mayor was good for Framingham, right? So like there were people who voted against this, the town becoming a city and, and we knew that they would stay home. We had to go out and find those voters and, and convince them that having a mayor is good and this is why, dot, dot, dot. And then on the other, so on top of that, we had to convince them of why this unknown, you know, well-educated, but a science background type of person was going to be a good governing person, a governing body. Um, so we had a couple of different challenges. She had never held office before. So getting the messaging around why this is good for Framingham, why she is good for Framingham, that was a big part of it. But once she found her groove and we put together a platform that talked about those open spaces, unifying, um, talked about the schools, talked about bringing businesses to Framingham, many, many people did get involved and got on board because those are the things that everybody wants. They want to walk on safe streets, drink clean water, have a good governing system where their kids can go to schools and feel safe and feel like they're getting their education and attracting teachers who want to come to Framingham and teach those kids. Like, so she coming from an educational background could talk about those things. And we just honed the message so that we made it sound political, which is kind of what I do now. Like I, I, 
I consider myself a spin doctor. I'm proud to say that. I don't care. Um, but that's really what a lot of politics is. It's it's spin. It's it's telling people, yes, what they want to hear, but it's actually making them feel like they're a part of that process. Like, this is why you should get involved because you have a stake in this too. And yes, you know, I was, I, I liken politics to dating. No one is themselves when they first show up at the date. You are a representation of who you are or who you want to be. It's not until six months later you realize you're like, oh my God, I'm dating a broken bird. Like, what is happening here? Like, this is not what I signed up for. Um, or I'm dating the greatest person in the world. I found my people. I found my person. So, you know, that's a lot with politics. You have to start off with this idea of who you are. And then when you do show up, you know, can you deliver? And a lot of times when you have good candidates, they can deliver. But a lot of that still has to depend on the people around you and the people in the government. And the city council was, you know, quite hostile. They were very hostile towards her. So, you know, and, and for me, you know, look, I don't, I didn't live in Framingham. And so these people had absolutely nothing to do with my career trajectory. They didn't know where I came from. Um, so they couldn't touch me. So I, I was unbothered by so many of them. But because of who she was and what she represented, you know, I had to I had to play a role. Sure. And so one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on this week, um, Jaquetta, we're recording this on January 4th, was that this is the week of the changing of the guard here in Massachusetts. So just a couple of hours ago, Governor Baker and Lieutenant Governor Polito walked down the front stairs of the Statehouse for their lone walk um, for the last time that they're leaving the Statehouse and as, as Governor and Lieutenant Governor. And tomorrow at noon, I believe... New, the incoming governor, Mara Healy, and incoming lieutenant governor, Kim Driscoll, um, will take their inaugural oaths. So I first want to start by looking back at the Baker-Polito administration. Obviously, they're wrapping up two terms. Governor Baker was consistently rated as one of the most popular governors uh, in the United States throughout his time. Even leaving office now, he's close to three, three, four, seventy-five percent. I think it was 73%. I saw the other day, still approval rating. Yeah. So looking back on the past eight years, and there's, there's so many places you can go and take it wherever you want. I guess, like, why do you think you've managed to remain so popular? And let's start with some of the the best things you think that the Baker administration accomplished over the last eight years. I actually like Charlie Baker. I like him as a person, right? And that's, mm -hmm. the, I don't find that a lot in this field. You know, a lot of people, you know, I'm into politics and I, I like politics a lot. I, I actually don't like political people um, because a lot of it is a facade um, of who they think they are. But Charlie Baker genuinely is a nice guy. He just genuinely is a nice guy. I don't necessarily align with all his Republican values, but I certainly think that he gave this Commonwealth the best of who he was. It was his opportunity to shine. And he really did. I think, you know, why he was so popular is because he seemed to not be tethered to his party. He spoke out when it was necessary. And that included issues of social justice. As we saw with Judge George Floyd, his speech after that was, to me, probably one of his best speeches, where he didn't necessarily tie it to just being race related, but just about the anger and hurt of the community of communities of color 
over decades and centuries. Um, he didn't have to do that. You know, in a, in a time where most of his Republican colleagues are overlooking that or making excuses for it, he did not. And, and he said he was steadfast in that. The same thing with the reproductive rights. When the uh, when reproductive rights was overturned, Charlie Baker took no time in coming out and saying, we will not change that here in Massachusetts. Massachusetts women will feel safe to go and make choices in their decision with their own bodies. Um, and if whatever they choose, we will honor that. No other Republican governor at the time had done that. And I don't think it's just about him being in a very liberal state. I really believe that this man has a wife and he has daughters and he took that into consideration. I thought that was super smart. I think that he has oftentimes criticized not only his own party, but our senators here and rightfully so. He has held other people accountable when it comes to this state. I think that he understands that you don't run this state like a business, you run this state like a family. And I think that he did that very well. Uh, I'm sad to see him go. I didn't need him to run again. <laughs> I'm sad to see him go because we haven't seen that kind of that measure of class in the Republican Party over the last 15 years. Um, even going before that with the Tea Party, you know, that was sort of the awakening that we saw what January 6th was, was just the culmination. Um, and so for me, I really think that Charlie Baker took the time to understand that he was governing everybody, not just a Republican base. Um, and I thought that that was, I thought that was a classy move. I'm, I'm, I'm sure he's going to go on and make a gazillion dollars working for the NCAA. I'd love to see how he's going to handle this little situation with the new brand building for college basketball. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm sure he will weather that just the way he weathered the storm here. Well, that's, that's high praise indeed. I think Ricky and I have talked before where we remark on his popularity and we think that it's, he just genuinely seems, and you spoke to that, of like a good person who generally cares about people. I do think it's interesting where I, as, as he's wrapping up eight years, and I do think he's done a very good job of try, was trying to like pinpoint like, what in particular has he done that I like really like? And it was more, I think, everything you said, of just like the feeling he gave your head and, and symbol for the state in a lot of ways. But um, so kind of with that transition, he left uh, some challenges for the incoming Healy administration. Um, but before we get into those challenges, I'd be curious of, of your take on um, Mar Healy in particular. Obviously, uh, we... She just went through you know, a year and a half of campaigning and she was wrapping up eight years as the attorney general, but they were they were not competitive campaigns. And I don't know how much she she seems and I was trying to think, I was like, she ran very much in a Charlie Baker mode. And I was like, as I was considering her, I was like, I view her similar to Charlie Baker. She seems very likable, very capable, very intelligent. I'm not totally sure what she stands for or like what she what she got elected for. So I'm curious, like your take on all of that. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked me this question. <clears throat> um, so let me let me have a disclaimer at, in the beginning. Mara Healy is a nice chick, right? She is fun. She is funny. She really has a very good sense of humor and she has a dry sense of humor, which I adore because I like shade. So I think she is extremely funny and shady at the same time. And you kind of want to hang out and 
you know, kick back and, you know, have a beer and throw a few baskets with her. I can't play basketball, so uh, I'd probably just drink beer. But for me, um, I thought that this was the most boring election season that we have seen in a long time. And it's because these women did not run competitive races. They had no opponents. And um, that led to a lot of um, voter apathy, you know, like people weren't inspired um, to come out and vote. People were not, they don't know where a lot of folks stand. Um, no one knows what her intentions were. Um, I think that, you know, Mara felt like, okay, I'm going to run and I, I know I'm running and I know I'm going to be governor one day. Um, I just think it kind of came sooner than she thought. <laughs> so I think that that trickled down into how, the campaign that she ran. Um, I'm sure she didn't have to fundraise or, or spend a lot of money. I mean, it was just like basically the Commonwealth handed her. She's going to have to campaign, in my opinion, in these next four years. People are going to hold her accountable for what they didn't see on the campaign trail. And even th they're looking at her right now through a microscope with who she's appointing to these different positions. And some people, you know, there's some likability there. Some other folks are some questionable choices. But yeah, I just, I was bored. I was bored the night of the election. I mean, I, I said on TV and it got me in a little bit of trouble that that I thought yeah. her speech was boring. Um, and it was, yep. sorry, it was boring. <laughs> <laughs> it was boring because it was like, I had heard this speech before. There was nothing aspirational about it. There was nothing inspirational about it. And I know Maura can do better because she is inspirational and she is aspirational. But none of that came through. And it just, ugh. I was like, I, I literally paid my Capital One bill like during the speech. But so in, in that sense, do you think we're just in for another four years, potentially even number eight years of like a Baker administration that is that comes across as likable and competent, but doesn't address some of the systemic issues that we continue to have here in Massachusetts? I think being governor of Massachusetts is a very safe bet, right? Like we don't do anything that is outside of the box. We don't color outside of the lines or anything else like that. Um, and unless, I mean, gone are the days where we're voting, we're voting for gay marriage, gone are the days we're voting for healthcare. So like, you know, there aren't really big issues that we need to discuss or have a governor who's going to be a lead on a lot of this. So I don't, I think it's going to be a very slow four years unless, you know, if Mara gets lucky, somebody really important drops dead in our state. Like, I don't think. I really don't think it's going to be anything more than like, you know, cutting ribbons and, and, you know, making some, some speeches. Would you like to see her be more ambitious? Yes. I, I what I would have wanted was that Mara would put every secretary would be a woman, like, and, and they'd run the gamut. Uh, it'd be all different walks of life um, and have just an all female band of just, women running government, running agencies. I would have loved that. It would have been so forward thinking because we talk a lot, you know, and especially women elected talk a lot about, you know, women being empowered and, but yet they put men in positions of power and it just, it kills me. It's like nails on a chalkboard to me. Um, I would have loved to have seen that. I would have loved for her to come out and say, you know, in Massachusetts, we are going to be leading the charge on whatever it is. 
Um, I'd love to see her, her thoughts on the North uh, South rail, which we heard nothing about. Um, and I know that that's been something that even goes back to Deval Patrick that nobody has been able to do. Um, and no one actually wants to talk about. So, you know, the state runs the T. The T is a mess. She didn't talk much about that. Um, Michelle Wu talks about it, but she has absolutely no power to do anything. So, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, what am I? I'm the governor of my own house here in Roxbury. That's how I think about it. I'm governing things. I'm running things from here. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I like that. I like that way to think about it. Um, but it, it is. I mean, you talked about having like women in government. It is. Ricky and I remarked upon this two months ago. We have the first. So not only is Mara Healy, for people that are not familiar with her, she's the first um, woman who was elected governor of Massachusetts. She's also the first openly lesbian governor in the United States. Um, Healy and Kim Driscoll, her lieutenant governor, are the first all female leadership team. Okay, uh, and then in addition we, to that, we, talk we have about you know, Andre- how badass Kim Driscoll is because I'm going to tell you, out of this entire, outside of Andrea Campbell, out of this entire election season, Kim Driscoll is the chick I wanted to go have dinner with. Like, I want to hang out with Kim Driscoll out of everybody. I mean, like, Andrea's already my friend, so I've already hung out with her. But, <laughs> but like, of that ticket, Kim Driscoll is the the one to watch, right? She is going, she's going places. Yeah, I mean, and just to kind of continue, like, along that line, you just mentioned Andrea Campbell, who, when she is inaugurated tomorrow, will be the first um, Black person elected to a statewide office here in, in Massachusetts, and the, obviously the first um, Black woman to be the Attorney General. We also have your former boss, Deb Goldberg, um, as treasurer, and Diana DiZoglio, DiZoglio who's going to yeah. be the auditor. So it is, in a lot of ways, it's, it's a female-dominated, at least, like, heads of these departments. I'm sure the Prince of Darkness is not happy about that. <laughs> Fair. All right. Uh, you also mentioned Michelle Wu. And so I do want to talk briefly as as someone who has grown up here in Boston. I mean, that election was obviously historic, too, as the first woman, the first person of color. And, and we talked about that, where it was really cool to see that she didn't need to campaign on that because all of her nearest competitors, Kim Janey and Andrea Campbell and Nisa Sabi George, were also women of in women of color. So, so. It was just like a, a merit-based who's the best candidate. Um, and so well, Michelle Wu's now been in office for about oh, 14 months. All right. So, so like, what, um, what, what are your reflections on her first year plus? So my, ref- so my reflections are, I think that this is, I'm seeing everything that I saw when she was a city councilor, right? Like nothing's really, um, let me say this. Marty Walsh was a very relational type, like legislator. Um, when he mm-hmm. was working with the unions, he understood about building networks. He understood um, the the presence of people was really where the power was. Uh, I see a very different contrast with Michelle um, and her team. I'm not saying she's not a people person. I'm just saying there's a there's a stark contrast between someone who understands the power of relationships and networks and someone who is learning that kind of on the job. Um, I think that she could do a lot better than she has done. Um, I don't think it's all entirely her fault. I think that there are some things that she's had to navigate because this city was run by Menino for so long that many times, I mean, even Marty was running into things that were put in place under that administration that were obstacles for this city. 
Um, and you know, I don't know if we'll still we'll see a little bit more of that um, with other mayors that come. Uh, but Michelle was a city councilor for six years. And what I'm holding her accountable for is, you know, you sat there for six years. What have you done? And what are you going to do different as mayor? So that's what I've been looking at. And right now I don't see too much movement. Um, and that could just be, it's just been a year, right? Like she's still learning things. Her staff right. is still learning things. Um, some of them are, <laughs> oh Lord. Um, so I think that she's still learning. I think a year is just not enough time to really accurately judge her administration. Um, I definitely think that she is making some missteps in terms of endorsements. Um, I think she should have stayed quiet or silent endorsing this year. Let that slide, get through this, understand the job, be a good mayor. And then once you build enough of a network and a machine, um, then you can, you know, Menino and Menino built his machine and Marty already had one coming in. So they didn't need that. Michelle has to build a machine. And right now she doesn't have one. And so it's the time for you to just stay quiet and 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 build that first. I want, I want to just, I think we're maybe running a little bit out of time here, but I want to jump back. No, I'm fine. Oh, okay. All right. Well, uh you may regret saying that because Kelly. No, no, no. You're forever. <laughs> we'll keep you here all night. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I wanted I want to just jump back to you know when Brendan said the you know the best candidate and you were like, well, the most electable. I'm curious yeah. just kind of how you think about uh those two things in I guess we'll say in juxtaposition to each other. Like the best candidate is not always electable and maybe vice versa, and, and how you think about those two things and how that either is that a reflection on our on our system, like, you know, the way we do primaries. And, and if you could envision some type of changes to get more of like the best candidates always coming to the fore, you know, with the cream rising to the crop, how, how, what, what would you think about? So here's the thing, right? Like <clears throat> voters vote on relatability, not personality. And so a lot of times what you see, and we saw this in 2016 with Trump and Clinton, Clinton obviously was the most qualified person, but she just was not electable. And she wasn't electable because people couldn't relate to her. And it wasn't that they couldn't relate because, you know, she's this high powered attorney and she was first lady. They couldn't relate because she would not let them in, right? If you're standing at someone's door and you're letting in cold air, I don't want to hang out with you. And, you know, I, if I had to like pinpoint one thing and I hate to, I hate to say this because it just, it, it makes me cringe too, but you know, the whole thing with, you know, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, what women wanted to hear was I wanted to go home and throw three bricks at my husband's head. And I was angry and I was sad and I was upset. That makes her relatable because there's not a woman on earth who hasn't been cheated on and hasn't felt that sting of that pain. That would have made her relatable, but because she decided I'm going to like, you know, turn a blind eye to it, or I'm going to not discuss it. It made people feel disconnected. And it's the same thing with other electeds when, or candidates is if you disconnect from somebody's feelings, if you disconnect from their relatability, you know, you lose them as a voter. Bill Clinton said, I too feel your pain. Like probably he didn't, but it made folks who felt like, okay, this man grew up and he had to work for his money. 
that I, I can relate to. Same thing with Barack Obama. Oh, okay. You didn't get into an Ivy League at first. Neither did I, but I worked my way up to an Ivy Everyone has something that they connect to, you know, and this is something that is just, you learn as you, you have siblings or you, you have that one sibling that is your best sibling. And then you have another sibling that you don't necessarily connect with. And I feel like a lot of times, especially in that mayoral race, people felt like they couldn't connect to Anissa because they weren't sure where she stood all the time. You know, are you for one thing? Or are you against it? And it was never a solid answer. She presented very mayoral. And having known Anissa, she's a very smart woman. Kim should not have run, period. And Andrea, the problem there was too many people jumped in the race. Shout out to her and Michelle for running against an incumbent, right? So they had the courage to do that. While everybody else didn't have that courage. And then Marty leaves and everyone's like, I'm ready to get in a boxing ring. Like everybody was all of a sudden, you know, Apollo Creed. Everybody was just in it. And it was weird because it was like, you knew some of these people absolutely weren't qualified to run, weren't qualified to run. Um, and I just think a lot of times people think, well, if I, if I look good, if I go to an Ivy league, if I, you know, come across as, you know, someone who's made it, that makes me relatable. No, that doesn't make you relatable. Relatable is talking about things that, that make you uncomfortable, make you cringe. Um, it just didn't work for her. And, and, you know, the same thing I see here is like Michelle was electable because she could go into communities when she did um, and have sort of cringy conversations in, in Chinatown when she talked about the housing crisis and how they had pretty much erased it. Nobody else was talking about that. And none of the other candidates were talking about that. She was able to bring those people in. She talked to young people about being a young staffer with Elizabeth Warren and the struggles with that and not knowing what to do and, and learning how to ask for help. That's relatable. The other candidates just weren't willing to do that. So she was the most electable because of that. I'm sorry, that's a long way really of saying it, but no, it's, I have it's, to give it's... examples. No, I think that's super helpful. And I, I'm sure Ricky and I, you know, when, when we do finally let you go, we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit more about like, Mayor Wu's strength as a candidate maybe hasn't necessarily translated to strengths as a as someone governing now as mayor. That, that's right. really, really interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, before I think her we naivete let you go around, you know, policing. I think her naivete around um, working with the city council because it's still a very mayor heavy system. But having come from the council, she should have a better grip on the council. And right now, she doesn't even have a grip on this very wild, out of control, embarrassing council. And so that in itself, older voters are looking at that and saying, you don't have what it takes to be mayor. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how many people are, have been paying attention to the council, but it's been a wild scene the last like six months there. So um, but Jaquetta, what are some... As we, as like, this is the very beginning, it really is the beginning of 2023. What are some of the things that you are going to be keeping an eye on, whether that's locally in Boston or statewide Massachusetts or even nationally? Like, what are some of the kind of big things, races, people that you're keeping an eye on? So a couple of things. One, I think everybody needs to be tuning into CNN right now and watch the house in chaos. <laughs> that's fun. Um, and 
I'm, it, I'm pulling for Hakeem Jeffries. Fascinating. Uh, <laughs> pulling, pulling, pulling for Hakeem Jeffries. Um, but there are a couple of big races that are happening here in Massachusetts, right? Justin Hurst just announced that he's running for mayor out in Springfield. Springfield is a bigger city. Um, and they, this will be the first time they ever have a mayor of color. Um, he will probably run against the incumbent, but the incumbent mayor Sarno has not, um, declared that he's running yet. That's going to be a great race to watch. Um, one, because it's going to be exciting. It's kind of young versus old. It's kind of this new progressive versus old school politics. Um, so that'll be very interesting to watch. I think the other races to, or the other people that you should be keeping an eye on is Lydia Edwards, who is um, a new state senator and she's over the East Boston. I think she has district one. Um, she's going to be proposing a lot of new legislation that is geared towards moving the city of Boston and that area into a more open space, green space. Um, so that's going to be fabulous to watch. Um, I think also you should keep your eye on what's what's happening in um, Gloucester. So there is a mayoral race that's happening in Gloucester that most people don't worry about, but Gloucester is a big fishing industry and, and they actually, you know, seed out to other parts of the Commonwealth and their mayor um, has a big part of that. So I think that's another race that people should be paying attention to. And I don't have any candidates in that one. I don't, you know, I don't know who exactly is going to run, but I do know that they are up. Um, and so that's going to be interesting to watch. Um, I think also, you might want to pay attention to what happens with the governor's council. So the governor's council gets to appoint judges. Um, that's like one of their main gigs. Um, but Massachusetts actually does not have a very diverse bench. Um, I know our, our head Supreme court justice is a black woman. However, it, the bench is just not diverse. Um, and so seeing what that's going to look like and seeing who these people are going to be, I think that's important to like, I think people should look behind the curtain, right? Like, you know, you know in the Wizard of Oz, guys, like never look behind the, the green curtain. Like, yeah, look behind the green curtain because that's really where politics happens. So don't pay attention to just the big sexy races. Um, you know, pay attention to what's happening. And if I can just say, I don't know what's going to happen on the U.S. Senate. You know, there's rumors that somebody might be retiring. Be interesting to see who lines up for that. Um, I have my thoughts, but, you know, we'll see. That, that's a nice bit of intrigue. And so if people wanted to follow your thoughts, Jacetta, where could they follow you? So you can follow me on Instagram. I am at politics underscore and underscore Prosecco, um, politics and Prosecco. You can find me there. Um, I also do my show. I do it now once a month um, on Fridays at 6 p.m. So it's always the third Friday of the month. Um, so you can find me there. And if you want to just kind of follow my shenanigans, um, you can find me at my regular Instagram, which is IBJVZ. Um, and I'm happy to uh, share my world with you. Well, we appreciate you coming on and sharing a little Thank bit you. of this your world. Thank you. This was fun. I hope I, hope I was helpful. I, I mean, I guess I can only speak for myself, but I thought it was a fascinating. <laughs> oh, good. Okay, good. I'm excited to listen back myself. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I would love to come back, and I'd love yeah. to have you guys on Politics and Prosecco. Thank you again so much for your time. For sure. Thank you, guys. Bye. Thanks. 
So I wasn't just saying that to Jaquetta while she was on it. That was, I thought, uh, a really interesting conversation. I was totally engaged in what she was saying the whole time. It's funny that, I don't know if she, we didn't really get into this, but I'd be curious if she would ever consider herself being a candidate. In some ways, I feel like I, I could see that she really likes the strategy and the machinery and being the the spin doctor in some ways, but I could also see her being a pretty effective candidate. But what were, what were some of the things that you found most interesting, most intriguing by from Jaquetta's conversation? Yeah. I mean, it was definitely a very interesting conversation. She, uh, I mean, her, the wealth of her experience, I mean, like you always say, we're so lucky to get the guests that we get. Um, I was thinking a bit about, Rand and how how much experience he had in or in or in political organizing. I mean, in, sorry, in union organizing, labor organizing, and now with Jaquetta and you going going back to like phone banking for Clinton all the way through hitting the you know ground and pound in Iowa um, and and all the other experiences that she's had to a winning mayoral campaign. Like those are. I, yeah, I mean, I'm a firm believer that like experience at all those different levels is so important to just getting that well-rounded understanding of how things work. And it's, yeah, it was just very cool to really hear how things work. And also interesting that like the thing that she really honed in on is the relatability of a candidate as like the, one of the biggest factors of like who can win and who can't, which is something that like I always feel like but in some ways I try I almost feel like I try to ignore as uh you know a determining factor in American politics but I guess it's obvious and from someone who actually you know who knows how these things works um I feel like now I have to I have to think I have to consider that more um in terms of evaluating candidates and and their you know probably the ability or you know ability for them to win races i guess right and that might not be why you vote for someone and maybe not even why she votes for someone because but to be fair you jaquetta me we're people that are like at the very kind of top not intellectually but people like care about this stuff and are invested in and want to know more but like what are your ideas what are you gonna do to solve them kind of like you asked but it, it's like that classic trope that we had growing up of like who would you rather have a beer with george bush or al gore <laughs> george bush <laughs> eight years later <laughs> I will say two things that I, that I thought were most interesting. One, when she was talking about the governorship here in Massachusetts, and I, it's Baker was boring. And I think that's why a lot of people liked him. And I wonder if Healy's going to be boring and a lot of people are going to like her. Like I, I was trying to get at this. It feels like almost like this weird, you never see this, but a continuation of the administration. You usually see that with like, uh, Karen Polito, lieutenant governor, had run and was like, all right, I just want to keep things moving the way they are. It almost felt like Healy, that's how she ran. But she kind of pointed out, when we grew up, Ricky, like there was like gay marriage was uh, was the hot button issue for so many years. And then she, as she said, it was healthcare, like universal healthcare in Massachusetts for so many years. And then even like marijuana was a big thing for a long time. But it's like, we kind of like checked all of those things. And I'm not totally sure what the big divisive issue is on the horizon. So I, I, it's a really interesting point about how safe being a governor is because you don't have to take a lot of risks. Yeah. And it's almost as if you take a risk and you fail and it's way worse than actually just being like not taking. So there's no incentive. Yeah. Yeah. But I did. I did love that 
you know, she and she rightly pointed out, like the quality of life issues that we deal with in Massachusetts are very different than they are in other states that have like significant, I don't know, water quality issues or something like that. But we do have this enormous, like, it sounds crazy to, to complain about it, but this enormous problem with traffic. We have a an MBTA system, which I love, that doesn't really function. Um, we, you know, and then we have obviously our connections to other states through high speed rail and all this other stuff that we've long in Massachusetts, if we are serious about things like climate change and serious about some of these other progressive issues, we have to be able to tackle some of the situation on the ground. And I think that's absolutely right. Like we just didn't hear about it from any from it well certainly not from the from the new governor and and really not from anybody and it's um and it's a shame that we didn't have candidates that were able to push each other on the issues i then i'm now i'm going to forget who it was who ran against baker at one point specifically on the issue of transportation i don't know if you know who it was maybe arroyo i don't know if he ran for governor i don't know i'm gonna get that wrong i'm just just Forget that I said a name, but like that there was at one point, but Baker was so popular that it was like done and dusted before the campaign even started. But yeah, you think about some of his biggest achievements and it was like kind of just keep keeping an even keel on things and not rocking the boat too much. Yeah, Jay Gonzalez was the name that you were looking for who ran against uh, Governor Baker back in 2018. I, I will say, and I appreciated Jaquetta saying this, was that she, she wished that we had heard more, more a more ambitious platform for Governor Healy. And I think one of the reasons that I wish we had gotten into this a little bit is because we don't, the campaigns weren't competitive, which we said, and part of that was because the other Democrats in the race kind of ceded the lane to, uh, to now Governor Healy because she had such a advantage like war chest wise from her eight years as attorney general but also because we don't have like a legitimate opposition party here in massachusetts and i would be curious like as someone that sees herself as and is a proud true blue progressive if jacetta would agree that it might be beneficial for the state in general and for candidates running for statewide office in particular to have a legitimate opposition party because you know the old adage like iron sharpens iron but Healy was never, never had to be sharp. I mean, because there were no like legitimate competition for it. The second thing I found most interesting was her analysis of Mayor Wu. Just in terms of the one of the Mayor Wu's strengths as a candidate was her ability to connect with people and to go out into the community and make people feel heard and feel seen and and relate to them. And that she hasn't necessarily been able to translate those skills to governing as mayor during her first year, which Jaquetta pointed out quite fairly, it, it's only been a year. It's hard to judge someone after only a year, especially someone in their first executive office like this. But uh, definitely something I will be now keeping more of an eye on when I look at like Boston and Mayor Wu. Yeah, what I mean, interesting too, how she like talked about, you know, Marty Walsh's effectiveness in large part being tied to his ability to build those relationships with people and when we think about these upstart candidates and we love the positions and whatever that they have but they're largely outsiders meaning outside the political system not necessarily outside where they're running from but it's okay now they get in there and i think we think about it as well everyone's against them and in in 
and there may be elements of that. But it could also be that like you need to have a little bit of an understanding of how these inner, you know, the backdoor dealings kind of work. And it's difficult to be effective if you kind of are coming without any of that, you know, on day one. If if you got to spend the first like two years, you know, getting in those uh, or, you know, building those ties so that when you go to put something yeah. forth, you know, you have the backing with you. It's a. Uh, it's a it's a tough slog, I think. Right. And maybe, and again, maybe this is something if, if we do have Jaquetta back on, we can ask her about this connection because it what you just said reminds me a little bit of what she was talking about with her time working for Yvonne Spicer and Framingham, where why was Dr. Spicer able to be elected? Why was she able to win? Was because she was able to go out and meet all of these people who didn't traditionally vote and get them, connect with them and get them to come out and vote for her. But then when she was there, because she was viewed rightly or wrongly as a little bit of an outsider, as someone that didn't belong maybe in politics or in that role, she wasn't able to effectively implement all of the things that she wanted to. So yeah, it's, it's, it's like trying to connect like the through lines and the takeaways from that conversation. That's definitely one of them. Yeah. Uh, and interesting to, and maybe her final comment that I'll part with, which I, which I think is very true. But again, I think as like, even, even we, as people who feel very in tune with what's going on often are not abreast of like all of these inner workings that like there are, you know, peeking behind the curtain is, is so much is just as important as anything that kind of the people who get the headlines and the FaceTime are doing in terms of how it impacts your daily life. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And I think that's something that you and I should continue trying to find those people to get to get in, get some more insight on that, because it's not easy for, I think, people to do, even if you are super inter- interested in and in tune with like the things that are happening. So, but I mean, it's, as we keep coming back to like the Tip O'Neill, all politics is local. It's, um, you know, even as it, much as it seems like to be moving away from that, in some ways, it's that's always going to be true. Indeed. Wow, you're just full of adages today. Knife sharpening knife. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but that that's that's me. But uh, all right, thank you again to Jaquetta. That was uh, a wonderful conversation. And again, go go check her out. Go follow her on uh, you know her own podcast on Instagram on on Twitter um, on NECN. There's plenty of places if you are intrigued by what she had to say today that you can follow up with her. But uh, thanks so much for to her for her time and as always to everyone for listening. Indeed. We'll see ya. See ya. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue debating all the issues of the day. No agenda, not yet. Talking heads Running around till we forget Where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find In a case of lion's head and Folks of different minds Because even though it did not share as we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz 
Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a ram Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The values sometimes being wrong Some mornings you away Some morning let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share out American ideals Friends made over arguments In an early morning bus I need an early morning bus There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics Trying to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find And chase the lion's head From folks with different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not Share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz